0: without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role.
1: Tonight, I will be reading What Maisie Knew by Henry James. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Introduction The litigation seemed interminable and
0: had, in fact, been complicated, but by the decision on the appeal, the judgment of the divorce court was confirmed as to the assignment of the child. The father, who, though bespattered from head to foot, had made good his case, was, in pursuance of this triumph, appointed to keep her. It was not so much that the mother's character had been more absolutely damaged, as that the brilliancy of a lady's complexion, and this lady's in court was immensely remarked, might be more regarded as showing the spots. Attached, however, to the second pronouncement was a condition that detracted, for Beale Farange, from its sweetness, an order that he should refund to his ex-wife the twenty-six hundred pounds put down by her, as it was called, some three years before, in the interest of the child's maintenance, and precisely on approved understanding that he would take no proceedings, a sum of which he had had the administration and of which he could render not the least account. The obligation thus attributed to her adversary was no small balm to Ida's resentment. It drew a part of the sting from her defeat and compelled Mr. Farange, perceptibly, to lower his crest. He was unable to produce the money or to raise it in any way, so that after a squabble scarcely less public and scarcely more decent, Than the original shock of battle. His only issue from his predicament was a compromise proposed by his legal advisers and finally accepted by hers. His debt was by this arrangement remitted to him, and the little girl disposed of in a manner worthy of the judgment seat of Solomon. She was divided in two, and the portions tossed impartially to the disputants. They would take her in rotation for six months at a time, she would spend half the year with each. This was odd justice in the eyes of those who still blinked in the fierce light projected from the tribunal, a light in which neither parent figured in the least as a happy example to youth and innocence. What was to have been expected of the evidence was the nomination, in loco parentis, of some proper third party, some respectable or at least some presentable friend. Apparently, however, the circle of the Farranges had been scanned in vain for any such ornament, so that the only solution finally meeting all difficulties was, save that of sending Maisie to a home, the partition of the tutelary office in the manner I have mentioned. There were more reasons for her parents to agree to it than there had been ever for them to agree to anything, and they now prepared with her help to enjoy the distinction that waits upon vulgarity sufficiently attested. Their rupture had resounded, and after being perfectly insignificant together, they would be decidedly striking apart. Had they not produced an impression that warranted people in looking for appeals in the newspapers for the rescue of the little one, reverberation, amid a vociferous public, of the idea that some movement should be started or some benevolent person should come forward, a good lady came, indeed, a step or two. She was distantly related to Mrs. Farange, to whom she proposed that, having children and nurseries wound up and going, she should be allowed to take home the bone of contention and, by working it into her system, relieve at least one of the parents. This would make every time for Maisie,
1: after her inevitable 6 months with Beale, much more of a change. More of a change. Ida cried. Won't it be enough of a
0: change for her to come from that low brute to the person in the world who detests him most? No, because you detest him so much that you'll always talk to her about him. You'll keep him before her by perpetually abusing him. Mrs. Farange stared. Pray then, am I to do nothing to counteract his villainous abuse of me? The good lady for a moment made no reply. Her silence was a grim judgment of the whole point of view. Poor little monkey, she at last exclaimed, and the words were an epitaph for the tomb of Maisie's childhood. She was abandoned to her fate. What was clear to any spectator was that the only link binding her to either parent was this lamentable fact of her being a ready vessel for bitterness, a deep little porcelain cup in which biting acids could be mixed. They had wanted her, not for any good they could do her, but for the harm they could, with her unconscious aid, do to each other. She should serve their anger and seal their revenge, for husband and wife had been alike crippled by the heavy hand of justice, which in the last resort met on neither side their indignant claim to get, as they called it, everything. If each was only to get half, this seemed to concede that neither was so base as the other pretended or to put it differently, offered them both as bad indeed, since they were only as good as each other. The mother had wished to prevent the father from, as she had said, so much as looking at the child. The father's plea was that the mother's lightest touch was simply contamination. These were the opposed principles in which Maisie was to be educated. She was to fit them together as she might. Nothing could have been more touching at first than her failure to suspect the ordeal that awaited her little unspotted soul. There were persons horrified to think what those in charge of it would combine to try to make of it. No one could conceive in advance that they would be able to make nothing ill. There was a society in which, for the most part, people were occupied only with chatter, but the disunited couple had last grounds for expecting a time of high activity they girded their loins, they felt as if the quarrel had only begun. They felt indeed more married than ever, inasmuch as what marriage had mainly suggested to them was the unbroken opportunity to quarrel. There had been sides before, and there were sides as much as ever, for the cider too the prospect opened out, taking the pleasant form of a superabundance of matter for desultory conversation. The many friends of the Faranges drew together to differ about them. Contradiction grew young again over teacups and cigars. Everybody was always assuring everybody of something very shocking, and nobody would have been jolly if nobody had been outrageous. The pair appeared to have a social attraction which failed merely as regards each other. It was indeed a great deal to be able to say for Ida that no one but Beale desired her blood, and for Beale that. If he should ever have his eyes scratched out, it would only be by his wife. It was generally felt, to begin with, that they were awfully good-looking. They had really not been analysed to a deeper residuum. They made up together, for instance, some twelve feet three of stature, and nothing was more discussed than the apportionment of this quantity. The sole flaw in Ida's beauty was a length and reach of arm, conducive, perhaps, to her having so beaten her husband at billiards, a game in which she showed a superiority largely accountable, as she maintained, for the resentment finding expression in his physical violence. Billiards was her great accomplishment, and the distinction her name always first produced the mention of. Notwithstanding some very long lines, everything about her that might have been large, and that in many women profited by the license, was with a single exception, admired and cited for its smallness. The exception was her eyes, which might have been of mere regulation size, but which overstepped the modesty of nature. Her mouth, on the other hand, was barely perceptible, and odds were freely taken as to the measurement of her waist. She was a person who, when she was out, and she was always out, produced everywhere a sense of having been seen often, a sense indeed of a kind of abuse of visibility, so that it would have been, in the usual places, rather vulgar to wander at her. Strangers only did that, but they, to the amusement of the familiar, did it very much. It was an inevitable way of betraying an alien habit. Like her husband, she carried clothes, carried them as a train carries passengers. People had been known to compare their taste and dispute about the accommodation they gave these articles, though inclining on the whole to the commendation of Ida as less overcrowded, especially with jewellery and flowers. Beelfarange had natural decorations, a kind of costume in his vast fair beard, burnished like a gold breastplate, and in the internal glitter of the teeth that his long moustache had been trained not to hide, and that gave him, in every possible situation, the look of the joy of life. He had been destined in his youth for diplomacy, and momentarily attached, without a salary, to a legation which enabled him often to say, In my time in the East. But contemporary history had somehow had no use for him, had hurried past him, and left him in perpetual piccadilly. Everyone knew what he had, only twenty-five hundred. Poor Ida, who had run through everything, had now nothing but her carriage and her paralysed uncle this old brute, as he was called, was supposed to have put a lot away. The child was provided for thanks to a crafty godmother, a defunct aunt of Beale's, who had left her
1: something in such a manner that the parents could appropriate only the income. Chapter 1 The child was provided for, but the new arrangement
0: was inevitably confounding to a young intelligence intensely aware that something had happened, which must matter a good deal, and looking anxiously out for the effects of so great a cause. It was to be the fate of this patient little girl to see much more than she at first understood, but also even at first to understand much more than any little girl, however patient, had perhaps ever understood before. Only a drummer boy in a ballad or a story could have been so in the thick of the fight. She was taken into the confidence of passions on which she fixed just the stare she might have had for images bounding across the wall in the slide of a magic lantern. Her little world was phantasmagoric, strange shadows dancing on a sheet. It was as if the whole performance had been given to her, a mite of a half scared infant in a great dim theatre. She was, in short, introduced to life with a liberality in which the selfishness of others found its account, and there was nothing to avert the sacrifice but the modesty of her youth. Her first term was with her father, who spared her only in not letting her have the wild letters addressed to her by her mother. He confined himself to holding them at her and shaking them while he showed his teeth, and then amusing her by the way he chucked them across the room, bang into the fire. Even in that moment, however, she had a scared anticipation of fatigue, a guilty sense of not rising to the occasion, feeling the charm of the violence with which the stiff unopened envelopes, whose big monograms, Ida bristled with monograms, she would have liked to see, were made to whiz like dangerous missiles through the air. The greatest effect of the great cause was her own greater importance, chiefly revealed to her in the larger freedom with which she was handled, pulled hither and thither, and kissed and the proportionately greater niceness she was obliged to show. Her features had somehow become prominent. They were so perpetually nipped by the gentlemen who came to see her father, and the smoke of whose cigarettes went into her face. Some of these gentlemen made her strike matches and light their cigarettes. Others, holding her on knees violently jolted, pinched the calves of her legs till she shrieked. Her shriek was much admired, and reproached them with being toothpicks. The word stuck in her mind and contributed to her feeling from this time that she was deficient in something that would meet the general desire. She found out what it was. It was a congenital tendency to the production of a substance to which model, her nurse, gave a short, ugly name, a name painfully associated at dinner with a part of the joint that she didn't like. she had left behind her the time when she had no desires to meet, none at least save Model's, who, in Kensington Garden, was always on the bench when she came out to see if she had been playing too far. Model's desire was merely that she shouldn't do that, and she met it so easily that the only spots in that long brightness were the moments of her wondering what would become of her if, on her rushing back, there should be no Model on the bench. They still went to the gardens, but there was a difference even there. She was impelled perpetually to look at the legs of other children and ask her nurse if they were toothpicks. Model was terribly truthful. She always said, Oh, my dear, you'll not find such another pair as your own. It seemed to have to do with something else that Model often said. You feel the strain, that's where it is, and you'll feel it still worse, you know. Thus, from the first, Maisie not only felt it, but knew she felt it. A part of it was the consequence of her father's telling her he felt it too, and telling Model in her presence that she must make a point of driving that home. She was familiar, at the age of six, with the fact that everything had been changed on her account, everything ordered to enable him to give himself up to her. She was to remember always the words in which Model impressed upon her that he did so give himself. Your papa wishes you never to forget, you know. That he has been dreadfully put about. If the Skinner model's face had to Maisie the air of being unduly, almost painfully stretched, it never presented that appearance so much as when she uttered, as she often had occasion to utter such words. The child wondered if they didn't make it hurt more than usual, but it was only after some time that she was able to attach to the picture of her father's sufferings, and more particularly to her nurse's manner about them. The meaning for which these things had waited. By the time she had grown sharper, as a gentleman who had criticized her calves used to say, she found in her mind a collection of images and echoes to which meanings were attachable. Images and echoes kept for her in the childish dusk, the dim closet, the high drawers, like games she wasn't yet big enough to play. The great strain, meanwhile, was that of carrying, by the right end, The things her father said about her mother, things mostly, indeed, that model, on a glimpse of them, as if they had been complicated toys or difficult books, took out of her hands and put away in the closet. A wonderful assortment of objects of this kind she was to discover there later, all tumbled up, too, with the things, shuffled into the same receptacle that her mother had said about her father. She had the knowledge that on a certain occasion, which every day brought nearer, her mother would be at the door to take her away. And this would have darkened all the days if the ingenious model hadn't written on paper in a very big, easy words ever so many pleasures that she should enjoy at the other house. These promises ranged from a mother's fond love to a nice poached egg to your tea, and took, by the way, the prospect of sitting up ever so late to see the lady in question dressed and silks and velvets and diamonds and pearls to go out. So that it was a real support to Maisie at the Supreme Hour to feel how, by model's direction, the paper was thrust away in her pocket and there clenched in her fist. The Supreme Hour was to furnish her with a vivid reminiscence that of a strange outbreak in the drawing-room on the part of model, who, in reply to something her father had just said, cried out, You ought to be perfectly ashamed of yourself. You ought to blush, sir, for the way you go on. The carriage, with her mother in it, was at the door. A gentleman who was there, who was always there, laughed out very loud. Her father, who had her in his arms, said to model, My dear woman, I'll settle you presently. After which he repeated, showing his teeth more than ever at Maisie while he hugged her, the words for which her nurse had taken him up. Maisie was not, at the moment, so fully conscious of them as of the wonder of model's sudden disrespect and crimson face. But she was able to produce them in the course of five minutes, when, in the carriage, her mother, all kisses, ribbons, eyes, arms, strange sounds and sweet smells, said to her, And did your beastly papa, my precious angel, send any message to your own loving mamma?" Then it was that she found the words spoken by her beastly papa to be, after all, in her little bewildered airs, from which, at her mother's appeal, they passed, in her shrill, clear voice, straight to her little innocent lips. He said, I was to tell you, from him,
1: she faithfully reported, that you're a nasty, horrid pig. Chapter Two In that lively sense of the immediate,
0: which is the very air of a child's mind, the present, on each occasion, it came for her as indistinct as the future. She surrendered herself to the actual with a good faith that might have been touching to either parent. Crudely, as they had calculated, they were at first justified by the event. She was the little feathered shuttlecock they could fiercely keep flying between them. The evil, they had the gift of thinking or pretending to think of each other. They poured into her little, gravely gazing soul, as into a boundless receptacle, and each of them had doubtless the best conscience in the world, as to the duty of teaching her the stern truth that should be her safeguard against the other. She was at the age for which all stories are true and all conceptions are stories. The actual was the absolute, the present alone was vivid. The objurgation, for instance, launched in the carriage by her mother, after she had at her father's bidding, punctually performed, was a missive that dropped into her memory with a dry rattle of a letter falling into a pillar box. Like the letter it was, as part of the contents of a well-stuffed postbag, delivered in due course at the right address. In the presence of these overflowings, after they had continued for a couple of years, the associates of either party sometimes felt that something should be done for what they had called the real good, don't you know, of the child. The only thing done, however, in general, took place when it was sighingly remarked that she fortunately wasn't all the year round where she happened to be at the awkward moment, and that furthermore, either from extreme cunning or from extreme stupidity, she appeared not to take things in. The theory of her stupidity, eventually embraced by her parents, corresponded with a great date in her small still life, the complete vision, private but final, of the strange office she filled. It was literally a moral revolution, and accomplished in the depths of her nature. The stiff dolls on the dusky shelves began to move their arms and legs. Old forms and phrases began to have a sense that frightened her. She had a new feeling, the feeling of danger, on which a new remedy rose to meet it. The idea of an inner self, or in other words, of concealment. She puzzled out with imperfect signs, but with a prodigious spirit that she had been a centre of hatred and a messenger of insult, and that everything was bad because she had been employed to make it so. Her parted lips locked themselves with the determination to be employed no longer. She would forget everything, she would repeat nothing, and when, as a tribute to the successful application of her system, she began to be called a little idiot, she tasted a pleasure new and keen. When, therefore, she grew older, Her parents, in turn, announced before her that she had grown shockingly dull. It was not from any real contraction of her little stream of life. She spoiled their fun, but she practically added to her own. She saw more and more. She saw too much. It was Miss Overmore, her first governess, who on a momentous occasion had sown the seeds of secrecy, sown them not by anything she said, but by a mere roll of those fine eyes which, Maisie already admired. Model had become, at this time, after alternations of residence of which the child had no clear record, an image faintly embalmed in the remembrance of hungry disappearances from the nursery and distressful lapses in the alphabet, sad embarrassments in particular, when invited to recognize something her nurse described as the important letter H. Miss Overmore, however hungry, never disappeared. This marked her somehow as of higher rank, and the character was confirmed by a prettiness that Maisie supposed to be extraordinary. Mrs. Farange had described her as almost too pretty, and someone had asked what that mattered so long as Beale wasn't there. Beale or no Beale, Maisie had heard her mother reply. I take her because she's a lady and yet awfully poor. Rather nice people, but there are seven sisters at home. What do people mean? Maisie didn't know what people meant, but she knew, very soon, all the names of all the sisters. She could say them off better than she could say the multiplication table. She privately wondered, moreover, though she never asked, about the awful poverty of which her companion almost never spoke of. Food, at any rate, came up by mysterious laws. Miss Overmore never, like model, had on an apron, and when she ate, she held her fork with her little finger curled out. The child, who watched her at many moments, watched her particularly at that one. I think you're lovely, she often said to her. Even Mama, who was lovely too, had not such a pretty way with the fork. Maisie associated this sureer presence with her now being big, knowing, of course, that nursery governesses were only for little girls, who were not, as she said, really little. She vaguely knew further, somehow, that the future was still bigger than she, and that part of what made it so was the number of governesses lurking in it and ready to dart out. Everything that had happened when she was really little was dormant. Everything but the positive certitude, bequeathed from afar by model, that the natural way for a child to have her parents was separate and successive, like her mutton and her pudding, or her bath and her nap. Does he know he lies? That was what she had vivaciously asked Miss Overmore, on the occasion which was so suddenly to lead to a change in her life. Does he know? Miss Overmore stared. She had a stocking pulled over her hand and was pricking at it with a needle, which she poised in the act. Her task was homely, but her movement, like all her movements, graceful. Why, Papa? That he lies? That's what Mamma says I'm to tell him, that he lies and he knows he lies. Miss Overmore turned very red, though she laughed out till her head fell back. Then she pricked again at her muffled hand so hard that Maisie wondered how she could bear it. Am I to tell him? The child went on. It was then that her companion addressed her in the unmistakable language of a pair of eyes of dark, deep grey. I can't say no. They replied as indistinctly as possible. I can't say no because I'm afraid of your mamma, don't you see? Yet how can I say yes after your papa has been so kind to me, talking to me so long the other day, smiling and flashing his beautiful teeth at me the time we met him in the park? The time when, rejoicing at the sight of us, he left the gentleman he was with and turned and walked with us, stayed with us for half an hour. Somehow, in the light of Miss Overmore's lovely eyes, that incident, came back to Maisie, with a charm it hadn't had at the time, and this in spite of the fact that, after, it was over, her governess had never but once alluded to it. On their way home, when Papa had quitted them, she had expressed the hope that the child wouldn't mention it to Mama. Maisie liked her so, and had so the charmed sense of being liked by her, that she accepted this remark as settling the matter and wonderingly conformed to it. The wonder now lived again, lived in the recollection of what Papa had said to Miss Overmore. I've only to look at you to see you're a person I can appeal to for help to save my daughter. Maisie's ignorance of what she was to be saved from didn't diminish the pleasure of the thought that Miss Overmore was saving her.
1: It seemed to make them cling together, as in some wild game of going round. Chapter 3. She was therefore all the more startled when her
0: mother said to her in connection with something to be done before her next migration You understand, of course, that she's not going with you. Maisie turned quite faint. Oh, I thought she was. It doesn't in the least matter, you know, what you think, Mrs. Farange loudly replied. And you had better indeed, for the future, miss, learn to keep your thoughts to yourself. This was exactly what Maisie had already learned and the accomplishment was just the source of her mother's irritation. It was a horrid little critical system, a tendency in her silence to judge her elders, that this lady suspected her, liking as she did for her own part, a child to be simple and confiding. She liked also to hear the report of the wax she administered to Mr. Farange's character, to his pretensions to peace of mind, the satisfaction of dealing them diminished when nothing came back. The day was at hand, and she saw it, when she should feel more delight in hurling Maisie at him than in snatching her away. So much so that her conscience winced under the acuteness of a candid friend who had remarked that the real end of all their tugging would be that each parent would try to make the little girl a burden to the other. A sort of game in which a fond mother clearly won't show to advantage. The prospect of not showing to advantage a distinction in which she held she had never failed, begot in Ida Farange an ill-humour of which several persons felt the effect. She determined that Beale at any rate should feel it. She reflected afresh that in the study of how to be odious to him she must never give way. Nothing could incommode him more than not to get the good, for the child, of a nice female appendage who had clearly taken a fancy to her. One of the things Ida said to the appendage was that Beale's was a house in which no decent woman could consent to be seen. It was Miss Overmore herself who explained to Maisie that she had had a hope of being allowed to accompany her to her father's, and that this hope had been dashed by the way her mother took it. She says that if I ever do such a thing as enter his service, I must never expect to show my face in this house again, so I've promised not to attempt to go with you. If I wait patiently till you come back here, we shall certainly be together once more. Waiting patiently, and above all waiting until she should come back here, seemed to Maisie a long way round. It reminded her of all the things she had been told, first and last, that she should have if she'd be good, and that in spite of her goodness, she had never had at all. Then who'll take care of me at Papa's? Heaven only knows my own precious, Miss Overmore replied, tenderly embracing her. There was no doubt, indeed, that she was dear to this beautiful friend. What could have proved it better than the fact that before week was out, in spite of their distressing separation and her mother's prohibition, and Miss Overmore's scruples, and Miss Overmore's promise, the beautiful friend had turned up at her father's. A little lady, already engaged there to come by the hour, a fat little lady with a foreign name and dirty fingers, who wore throughout, A bonnet that had first given her a deceptive air, too soon dispelled, of not staying long, besides asking her people questions that had nothing to do with lessons. Questions that Beale Farange himself, when two or three were repeated to him, admitted to be awfully low. The strange apparition faded before the bright creature who had braved everything for Maisie's sake. The bright creature told her little charge frankly what had happened. That she had really been unable to hold out. She had broken her vow to Mrs. Farange. She had struggled for three days, and then she had come straight to Macy's papa and told him the simple truth. She adored his daughter. She couldn't give her up. She'd make for her any sacrifice. On this basis, it had been arranged that she should stay. Her courage had been rewarded. She left Maisie in no doubt as to the amount of courage she had required. Some of the things she said made a particular impression on the child. Her declaration, for instance, that when her pupil should get older, she'd understand better just how dreadfully bold a young lady to do exactly what she had done had to be. Fortunately, your papa appreciates it. He appreciates it immensely. That was one of the things Miss Overmore also said, with a striking insistence on the adverb. Maisie herself was no less impressed with what this martyr had gone through especially after hearing of the terrible letter that had come from Mrs. Farange. Mama had been so angry that, in Miss Overmore's own words, she had loaded her with insult, proof enough, indeed, that they must never look forward to being together again under Mama's roof. Mama's roof, however, had its turn this time for the child, of appearing but remotely contingent, so that, to reassure her, there was scarce a need of her companion's secret solemnly confided, the probability that there would be no going back to Mama at all. It was Miss Overmore's private conviction, and a part of the same communication, that if Mr. Farrant's daughter would only show real marked preference, she would be backed up by public opinion in holding on to him. Poor Maisie could scarcely grasp that incentive, but she could surrender herself to the day. She had conceived her first passion, and the object of it was her governess. It hadn't been put to her, and she couldn't, or at any rate she didn't, put it to herself that she liked Miss Overmore better than she liked Papa, but it would have sustained her under such an imputation to feel herself able to reply that Papa too liked Miss Overmore
1: exactly as much. He had particularly told her so. Besides, she could easily see it. Good night.